Lord Jesus, we believe in your name. And we're hungry this morning to hear more of you. And we pray that your Holy Spirit will be poured out amongst us so that we might encounter you, Jesus, as we read your word. And that it will do what Luke wanted it to do. It will make us know the certainty of the things we have been taught. For your name we pray. Amen. Please, would you sit down? Thank you. Sometime towards the end of each day, I do a prayer exercise where God and I sit down together, as it were, and I ask him to show me what he's been doing in my life that day. And as he does, and conversations and events come to mind, I give him thanks for all those times when I see that he has worked through me when I've been, even in some tiny way, a channel for his love, or when he has changed me in some way or set me free. Well, just imagine being in Peter's shoes and doing such a prayer exercise on the day of Pentecost. It would be really helpful if you would find in your Bibles page 1093. And as you do, I'll just remind ourselves, if you were Peter, it began with a tornado when you were filled with the Holy Spirit. Then you spoke languages you had never learned, and yet foreigners understood you talking about God. Then you were made fun of, so you stood up and delivered your first sermon to a crowd of thousands And as you were preaching, God was reminding you of scriptures and you made connections between those scriptures and Jesus. And by the end of the day, you've challenged the crowd to repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ and about 3,000 take up your challenge. That was some day of God at work. Or you could imagine you were one of those 3,000 Well, your day also took some dramatic turns. Just look back with me. Verse 5, you began the day as a God-fearing Jew, staying in Jerusalem for an annual religious festival. Uh, Verse 7, you heard some ordinary Galileans, uneducated people, speaking about God in the language of your homeland. Well, you're not surprisingly, verse 12, amazed and perplexed, so you begin to ask, well, what is going on? What does this mean? Or maybe you were one of the mockers. Uh, But by verse 37, the end of the chapter that we had read, you've realized you need to do something about this, and you choose to repent and be baptized, a shocking act for any Jew. How had you come to make such a journey within one day? Well, the answer is simple. Peter helped you encounter Jesus. For Jesus was all that Peter spoke about. Jesus who fulfills the Jewish scriptures. Jesus whom the Jews crucified. Jesus, whom Peter and the 11 apostles met alive after he had died. Jesus, who is now glorified in heaven with God. And you came to see, verse 36, 
God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. It's all about what God has done in and through Jesus. So let's unpack it together this morning. Firstly, in Jesus, God has fulfilled what he promised. In Jesus, God has fulfilled what he promised. Looking over today's passage, it's hard to miss the fact that Peter quotes a lot of the Old Testament, which were, then as now, the Jewish scriptures. About a third of the sermon that we have here. Verses 17 to 21, written by a prophet called Joel, and verses 25 to 28, and then 34, from Psalms, written by David, Israel's greatest king. For Peter, it is these ancient writings, Joel, some 400 years previously, and the Psalms, 10,000, sorry, 1,000 years previously, which now explain recent events. Well, Peter begins where they are with the strange phenomena which have impacted the disciples and the crowd. Verse 14. Let me explain this to you, says Peter. This, what is going on, verse 16, is what was spoken about by Joel. So in other words, when God promised 400 years ago, I will pour out my spirit on all people, that is what he is doing now. When God promised then, verse 17, all types of people would prophesy, that is what you're seeing now. When God promised then, verse 19, to show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, well, this is it. And then, verse 22, Peter cuts straight from the prophecy to Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him. It's as if Peter is answering the unspoken question of the crowd. Why now? Why is God fulfilling this 400-year-old promise now? And the answer is because of Jesus. In Jesus, God revealed himself through amazing miracles, through wonders only God could do, and signs beyond human comprehension. And now, through Jesus, the Spirit has been poured out on the disciples with wonders and signs. Do you see the thread? And this connection is spelt out even more clearly, verse 33, when we see that Jesus exalted at the right hand of God, it's Jesus who has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. So what does this tell us? Well, it tells us that in Jesus, God has fulfilled his promises Our God is a God who shares with his people through scripture what he plans to do 
sometimes long before he plans to do it. And if that is so, the more aware we are of what God has promised in Scripture, the more encouraged we will be. God wants us to read and study his whole word, the New and the Old Testaments. So those of you who began this year with will, determined to read the whole Bible through, well, keep going, keep going. And then as we become more aware of what God has said, our faith and our expectancy will grow because we will see how in Jesus, God actually fulfills all his promises. So Jesus In Jesus, God has fulfilled his promise. Secondly, Jesus is the Christ of God. Or it could read, Jesus is the Messiah of God. Now, the people who first heard this sermon were all Jews. So they had a very different starting point from most of us. Joel's prophecy and the Psalms would have been familiar to them. And their primary longing from Scripture was that God would someday send his chosen one, his Messiah, or in Greek, his Christ. And this Messiah would rescue his people and usher in an age of peace and prosperity. Well, Peter wants his hearers to be in no doubt that this is what has now happened. Verse 36. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And Christ. Well, what evidence does he use to convince them? He begins with common ground. It's always a good starting place. First piece of evidence, the life of Jesus. In particular, verse 22, the miracles, wonders, and signs done by Jesus. Now, the prophets had anticipated that the Christ would do miraculous signs, heal the sick, um, give the blind eyes to see, um, make the the dumb speak, etc. And Peter draws attention to how God did them among you through Jesus, as you yourselves know. Either because they had actually been present and seen some of these miracles, seen the dead raised, seen the blind see, or maybe they had heard from others who had. It seems there was no doubt at the time that Jesus was a man who worked miracles. Second piece of evidence, the death of Jesus. Again, Peter makes the link with his Jewish hearers. It's verse 23. This man was handed over to you, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Well, only six weeks on, that event would still have been in public awareness. But now Peter reveals that on another level, God was at work in all of this. Now, he doesn't deny 
The Jews were responsible, the Romans were responsible for Jesus' death. But he does claim, verse 23, this man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. In other words, God planned the death of Jesus. Nothing about it took him by surprise. Nothing was an accident. More than that, verse 24, God raised Jesus from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Now, I imagine at this point, the crowd thinking, hold on, Peter, life of Jesus, yeah, okay, we're with you on that one. Death of Jesus, yes, okay, we knew that happened too. But resurrection of Jesus, where do you get that from? Well, Peter backs up his claim, and he takes two sources. First, scripture, and then his personal experience as a witness. Scripture then. The section of Psalm 16 we have at first looks like it's an expression of David's hope in God. Look at verse 27. Because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. But Peter points out confidently, this is verse 29, uh, David did in fact die. David was buried. And they could visit David's tomb, if they liked, with the remains of his body in Jerusalem, if that's what they wanted to do. So therefore, David must have been speaking prophetically. And he speaks, verse 30, of one of his descendants, whom God had promised would sit upon his throne as king. The Jews knew that their Messiah, the Christ of God, would be one of David's descendants. And now here is Peter claiming that death and resurrection had been prophesied by David for the Christ. Verse 31. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. So in this light... The title, Your Holy One, You Will Not Let Your Holy One See Decay, in the psalm looks like a reference pointing forward to the chosen Christ of God, who although he would be put in a grave, he would be buried, would not remain there, and nor would his body be allowed to decompose. So having shown from the scriptures that the Christ must rise from the dead, according to prophecy, Peter now turns to Jesus, verse 32. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. Now remember, Peter is standing up alongside the 11 other disciples of Jesus, And I can imagine him at this point gesturing inclusively to the others. We all saw him alive. And here we are all telling you it's a fact. So can you see the logic? If we saw Jesus alive after we'd seen him die, and the scriptures say the Christ had to die and be raised to life, 
then Jesus must be the Christ. Jesus is their longed-for Messiah. So what does this mean? Well, for the Jews, the waiting is over. The waiting is over. Jesus is the Christ of God, and the time for response has now come. And for us, It means that we can have confidence, my friends, because our faith in the resurrection is based on the witness of these 12 men whose lives were totally transformed by 40 days spent with the risen Jesus and then by the inner empowering of the Spirit of God. So in Jesus, God has fulfilled all his promises. Jesus is the Christ of God. And nearing the end of his sermon, Peter has one more accolade for Jesus. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Verse 36, God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Jesus is no longer a man walking this earth, but is now, verse 33, exalted to the right hand of God, the place of authority and honor, the place from where he has poured out the Holy Spirit, and the place where Jesus and God are in perfect relationship. Well, the apostles, they had seen, actually seen Jesus taken up into heaven back in Acts 1, but now all of Peter's hearers could see the effects of the Spirit poured out, And that is seen as evidence that that is what Jesus is doing from God's right hand. And then Peter again quotes David, now Psalm 110, our verse 34. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now as Peter points out, David did not ascend to heaven But it is is as if, in his divinely guided imagination, he eavesdrops a conversation in heaven. A conversation between God, the Lord, and his own descendant, the Christ, my Lord. God honours the Christ by inviting him to sit at his right hand while God crushes all his enemies under him. No wonder the Jews were cut to the heart. They had been shown to be Jesus' enemies when they crucified him. And now they learned that God has elevated Jesus as his Christ and their Lord. All of this would have been a massive shock. Now, I think it's fascinating that Peter didn't tell them they needed to respond. Instinctively, they know they do. Instinctively, they know that this applies to them personally. What shall we do? Brothers, what shall we do? And if you followed me so far, maybe you're asking the same question. For though most of us are not Jews... Most of us are God-fearers, or we wouldn't be here. 
Peter says, repent and be baptised every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ. Repent. Old-fashioned word, but no other word will quite do. You see, it's more than just saying sorry. This word has the sense of admitting, I've been going in one direction and now I admit it's the wrong one and I'm going to turn around and go in the opposite direction. No longer is it me at the centre, I deciding how I want to live my life, even how I want to worship God. No, Jesus is Lord. I name Jesus as my Lord, and all I want to do is follow him. It's radical. It's not something you drift into. It is a heart change. And then, as a mark of that repentance, be baptised. Be baptised, not an optional extra. For the Jews, this was highly offensive. Baptism was for the Gentiles who converted to Judaism. So for a Jew to be baptised was to admit that no one could be saved by being a Jew alone. Now some of us have never publicly owned our faith and maybe now is the time for you to talk to Alan or Will or Lucy about being baptised or confirmed in November. In the name of Jesus Christ there is no other name given under heaven by which we may be saved and if like Peter's hearers you want to save yourselves from this corrupt generation then we need to hear the words of Joel. Look back at the end of that prophecy. And everyone who calls, this is verse 21, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Every one. Not everyone will be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. And this Lord His name has now been revealed as Jesus. And then you will receive forgiveness and the gift of the Holy Spirit. And if the Lord is calling you this morning, then the promise is for you. Well, let's pray. I'm aware as we pray that today is a day of opportunity. We could also imagine that we were one of those who did not respond, not one of the 3,000, and how we looked back on that day. And many of us, God is calling in some way to respond. And I just want to reassure you that God is love, And he always wants to save us and he always wants to call us deeper into his love. But in a moment I'm going to ask that anyone who wants to mark a desire to respond would stand. No one's going to ask you why, I'm not going to ask you why. But God sees your heart and he treasures your response. So as I'm going to mention some people at any stage or at the end of the list than if you would choose to stand. If you feel you need to repent and turn to Christ, if you feel God is calling you to seek baptism or confirmation, 
If you long to be excited by the scriptures afresh and you want to commit yourself to study more of God's word, if you want to be more confident and bold talking about Jesus, if you want to ask God to fill you again with his Holy Spirit, or for any other reason you want to respond to something that God has said to you this morning, then I invite you to stand while the rest of us just continue to pray. Please stand. Father God, you know all our hearts. You know why each of these people has chosen to respond in this way. I pray that you will confirm the choice that they have made and what they have signaled to you they want to do in response to your word. And I pray for each one of us that you would continue to confirm this word to our hearts that Jesus is Lord and Christ in his name. Amen.